Strikes across Europe. Inflation is rising while living standards are falling. But can governments and corporates afford to pay their employees more? As the world faces a global economic downturn, we look at the toll European strikes could take on flagging economies. I'm Andrea Sankey, and today's newsmaker is Europe's strike action. Throughout Europe, millions of people are staging strikes to voice their discontent. Multiple sectors over many months now have been impacted as workers demand higher pay and better working conditions. There are, of course, arguments on both sides as to who's to really blame. Some say militant unions have gone too far, unfairly disrupting citizens' lives by leading hundreds of thousands of members onto the streets. But others say the unions are simply giving workers a much-needed voice in a time of crisis, created by poor government. Either way, collective bargaining leaves workers in a stronger position during negotiations. With persistent inflation hitting 40-year highs, some employees need that leverage more than ever to prevent any further drop in their standard of living. But how long can EU countries really cope with the continued disruption? Let's have a look at some of the action across the continent. This week in Barcelona, around 16,500 teachers, healthcare workers and taxi drivers stopped working. About 6,500 people protested in front of the regional parliament on Wednesday, and 10,000 doctors and nurses picketed outside the health department. In Madrid last week, tens of thousands of health workers protested against what they call the destruction of the public health system by the conservative regional government. The problem is that they are not allowing us to work properly. They are forcing us to give a bad service to patients. This is going to divide health into poor and rich people. And on Wednesday, 900 vehicles, mostly taxis, cut off one of Barcelona's main roads for hours to protest against digital ride-sharing platforms. At Berlin Airport, all flights were cancelled on Wednesday as workers struck for better pay. Around 30,000 passengers were affected. Well, I'm from Mongolia. We were going back home through transferring Istanbul to Mongolia. And all the flights cancelled. So disappointed. Wasted a lot of money to get here and try to experience Germany. Hundreds of thousands have demonstrated in Paris and other French cities this year against proposed pension changes that would raise the retirement age to 64. With an aging population and increasing life expectancy, not to mention pension spending of 14% of the GDP, Macron's government says the reform is necessary. Unions argue the pension overhaul threatens hard-won rights and have proposed a wealth tax or greater employer contributions to sustain the pension system. Today's mobilization reflects the massive opposition. I think nearly 80% of the people are against it, especially among the youngest people. I work in a kindergarten, and the working conditions are worse and worse, and two more years. That's not possible. Physically, no. Another strike is scheduled for January 31st of workers from the transport, education, and fuel refinery sectors. Airport unions in Paris are also hoping to join. And across the UK, there are strikes planned every day until the end of January, mostly in the health and transport sectors. Runaway inflation has proven too much for British workers, who've seen years of stagnant wage growth. 
Amazon workers are the latest to join in, staging their first ever strike for better pay. The members of the GMB union say they're unhappy with a below inflation pay increase and tough working conditions. Amazon is currently in consultation to close down three of its UK sites, where it employs a combined 1,200 people. So with so much disruption around Europe and few agreements in sight, where and how will these movements end? Joining me now to debate that and more are from Newcastle in the UK, John Howarth. He is the director at Politics Without Borders, think tank, and a former Labour Party member of the European Parliament. In Paris, we have Anne-Elizabeth Moutet, a French columnist for The Telegraph. And from London, Amanda Lennon. She is an employment lawyer and HR director at Spencer West Law Firm. Thanks all so much for being with us. Uh, John, I'll start with you first. I mean, it might be fair to give this some context here. And while there is a lot going on in a number of European countries right now, historically, how does this wave of strike action compare to movements in the past? Well, in the past, uh, there have been many more days lost through strikes than there are in the current wave of strikes. Uh, there are a whole number of reasons for that. Uh, but it would be wrong to assume that what's going on now is uh, any kind of historic high. What makes it look higher is that it sets against a historic low, particularly after coming out of the COVID pandemic when people were looking at the amount of money in their pockets. Um, but strikes happen when People are discontented when they have a sense of injustice. Mm -hmm. They don't just happen because they fancy more pay, because generally speaking, the pay people lose during a strike is never recouped, even if they win a bigger pay increase if the strike is primarily about pay. Right. I mean, because you, you've articulated before that there is a cost to society during these strikes, but there is also a cost to those on strike, that they will actually lose money while on strike, that sometimes hard-won pay hikes don't even compensate for. So at a time like this, when the cost of living has gone up so much, how much is at risk for those on strike? A great deal. Um, strikes often end in loss of jobs. Strikes often end in unviability of the employer. Strikes often end in the long term. Uh, with people uh, suffering worse conditions than the ones they went in to fight for. Mm. It's, a it's an incorrect view to assume that trade union leaders spend their time trying to foment discontent and bring people out on strike. Most of the time, the trade union leaders I know well spend their time trying to avoid strikes because a, a strike in industrial relations terms is like a war. Once you enter it, both sides lose. And there may be a significant cost to the employer, but that, that, you know, that can be very damaging in the long term. And societally, again, there are, there is, again, like a war, there is collateral damage. Uh, there are firms that can't get their parcels delivered. There are people who can't get to see their relatives or attend meetings because the trains are on strike. There are people who uh, experience slower treatment in hospitals because, because the ambulances and hospital staff perhaps are on strike. So all of these things do have a cost. And I don't think anybody goes into a strike wanting to do that. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in, uh, in, in, in politics, particularly in one current of it, who are quite anxious to hold the coats of people and say strikes are a great thing. Mm. Anybody who's actually been closely involved with it knows that they're not. Uh, Anne-Elizabeth Moutet, let me 
turn to you, and if you can maybe cite what's going on in France, I mean, do you think these strikers are doing the right thing, given with what John has just explained are the risks and the potential major losses uh, for striking, especially at a time like this? I think the culture of strikes in France is entirely different from what it has become in the past 40 years in Britain. And I remember being at school in Britain during the winter of discontent. And uh, we are now, uh, France is somewhere sort of midway through the winter of discontent and the culture of strikes in a country like Britain that has almost forgotten it. Uh, but in France, we are used to strikes. They uh, are codified. You have to declare the day when you strike. You, uh, it's very rare that you've got the grève sauvage, the wildcat strikes. Uh, and um, it mostly is part of a general kabuki to get results from the government. Uh, now, things can get out of hand and then they can harm people. And that's quite, you know, that's very true. But mostly you have one day, two days, uh, as public as possible. And half the time, these are the public sector or, pa or the semi-public sector, so in France, transportation, uh, the postal service, the teachers, which means that even though it uh, is not necessarily something uh, uh, that is going to help people, they can't lose their jobs, mm. uh, which makes a huge difference. In the private sector, it is harsher. It happens more rarely. And, and yes, they can, they can end tragedy, but the people you see outside in the streets right now protesting mostly the, um, uh, the pension reform are people who have public service pensions. Right. You know, Anne Elizabeth, it's, it, France can easily baffle somebody from the outside and how, and how the economy actually continues to function the way it does and provide the services it, it provides, uh, government, uh, in, especially, uh, you know, Europe's social infrastructure is, is very costly, especially in France. And, you know, if budgets haven't been managed well over the course of, of decades, adjusting the system at when it comes to a crunch point that some say we're at even now uh, becomes impossible to afford. What happens in France? How can the government actually deal with the adjustments it needs to make, given where the economy is at. I mean, when I say the adjustments it needs to make, maybe that's not the case. But a lot of people argue that France has to raise the retirement age to at least meet the universal standard now. There's so many questions that are all good questions, because one of them is actually Britain looks at, um, at uh, public services in France and Britain thinks that these are wonderful. But we remember what they used to be like and they're not wonderful at all and they're, they're threadbare in many instances and hospitals for instance are a good example public transport has become an example as well uh, 30 years ago I used to take the tube in London and say oh good I'm going back to Paris it, the metro is so much cleaner and nicer and now it's the opposite so even in those things that France was renowned like infrastructure uh, we're, we're getting to the end of the feather now in terms of the economic situation during COVID, essentially, the government threw money at the situation, thinking it is better rather than see the breakdown uh, of, of the economy, rather than see companies uh, 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 go bankrupt to, to, to pay for them. But that means that the government doesn't have any, any reserves anymore. We've got a very high debt level, which is, uh, uh, I think, our debt level is something like 120% of GDP. Mm -hmm. None of this is good. Uh, when you, now, when you come to deal with the pension reform, what's interesting is that, uh, for years, 
there have been incremental uh, reforms for of, of the pension system, which is a pay-as-you-go system, which were seen as victory of the people who had strikes so that they would not be reformed. Uh, it would not be reformed entirely. But actually, they have cut down the average pension in constant currency by almost one-third. Hmm. But in terms of the age reform, that's necessary because, because it's a pay-as-you-go system, because it's a system that was started in 1946 at the same time that you have the beverage reforms in Britain. Uh, the, the pension system uh, at that time, uh, you had eight people at work paying for one pensioner. And nowadays, you've got fewer than two people at work paying for one pensioner. So that is completely unsustainable. And that the age, uh, the age uh, of retirement has got to be raised. And so what's the end game? Because they've been saying that for decades now. Uh, look at the actual results and the fact that the um, the public pensions have gone uh, down by almost one third in average is already something that was done to try and uh, to try and, and sort of make the system sustainable. Uh, mm. The age of pensions went up under Nicolas Sarkozy 12 years ago from 60 to 62. It will eventually go up to 64 with lots of arrangements for people who've got long careers, who started young, women who raised children, that sort of thing. But it's it's actually going to happen. But the whole uh, the whole drama must happen in the streets. Okay. The other thing is probably it's more dramatic now because everybody is worried that the economy is tanking. Mm. So it's very different when you feel that, okay, you'll be fine, you'll have a job. But the real problem is more uh, that in general, we, we, we go to the supermarket and we know we see how expensive things are. So all of this is very different. Okay. You know, Amanda, John explained what the risks are of actually going on strike. Um, but do you think workers at this point in various European countries just have no choice? Have they really just been pushed to the brink now, given the cost of living crisis? Well, I think anyone who's actually going on strike is at, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a very much last resort point in the discussions with their employer. Um, if you go on strike, certainly in the UK, you will lose a day's pay for every day you go on strike. And as um, we've already discussed, those costs are not really recouped. There are very few instances I know of where unions are helping or other members are helping people um, with the loss of pay if they're going on strike. So it is a last resort and it it's it's drastic. Whilst I don't think in the UK we will see the scenes that we've seen in France um, in terms of mass, almost like a general strike, um, I do think that more and more public sector services in particular are under this type of pressure and could see more strikes. I read this morning that, for example, in the UK, the physiotherapists are now looking to go on strike. And that follows hotly on um, on the heels of teaching unions mm. who are now due to go on strike. So and, it's, it's a real issue. Right. And I mean, there are, in the UK in particular, there's been a full schedule uh, of strike action to deal with, with more still to come. I mean, how how long can that go on for? Well, if the union meets the uh, requirements of uh, going on strike, and there are, it's it's very strict procedural mm. requirements that you have to follow. So by the time you actually get to go on strike, um, that can go on for uh, set periods. They, the union could issue uh, a ballot and go on strike again. So potentially this could go on indefinitely. I think the, the issue is at what point does striking become futile? Yeah. When do you come back to the table and who's going to make enough concessions on both sides so that an agreement can be reached? And uh, that's the way to overcome this. Is there potential uh, for this to 
go that far, reach that point you've described, but actually backfire? Do you mean in terms of the uh, possible general strike? It, well, in terms of actually everyone involved, where there is just too much loss to recoup. Uh, absolutely. Mm. Um, I have... I have worked in businesses where we have gone through strikes. It's not nice for anyone. Um, ultimately, as um, we discussed previously, the, the employer loses in the sense of um, it becomes less economic for the business to move forward. So they end up making job cuts or other savings. And then for the employees, they could risk losing their jobs, certainly not getting the pay that they want and having to look elsewhere anyway. Um, so it's not a satisfactory situation mm. for both parties when the strike is involved. John, how much are you worried right now that that scenario could unfold? I think it is difficult because uh, what what can trigger a strike is an employer saying, OK, let's see if they're serious. Let's see if the ballot goes in favour of strike action. Then the ballot, of course, goes in favour of strike action because people are unhappy, uh, discontented, but for whatever reason, uh, they face pressures because of inflation, they face pressures on their hours at work and their conditions, mm -hmm. and they've had enough, and they ballot for strike action. And then, of course, uh, you've loaded the gun, and to some extent, you've got to use it, and it becomes a, a cycle of escalation that is very difficult to, to, to get out of. Very, very rarely the strikes end in victory for one side or another. Usually there is some kind of agreement and one side will attempt to spin it as a victory or not. Uh, but of course, you know, of course people have a, a, a tendency to uh, to follow trends. And if there's a trend towards strike action, um, we can uh, we can end up in cycles of that. But, you know, there's a big difference between a situation where people decide to go on strike for one day here and one day there, and maybe they'll get a bit of overtime and recoup some of that uh, some of that cost, or a situation where people come out on strike and stay on strike for a long time, and it becomes um, I, I struggle to find a better term than life or death, but but mm. in, in you know in employment terms, it it becomes that. Uh, and, and they are the ones that cause immense damage. And realistically, um, given the losses that employers incur by going into strike action, the sensible way to do this is to is to engage with people and, and find a solution. And, and often, you know, the question will be asked to people, would you have settled for that before the strike started? And often the answer is, yes, actually, we probably would have and possibly even even end up settling for less than that. Mm. So it's so it's a very difficult it's a very difficult situation. I would say just on a, on a comment on on, you know, things like the French situation where you've got a situation where in public policy terms, a situation badly needs to be addressed mm -hmm. and where you don't need a mathematical genius to work out that if you've got twice as many people who are, of course, living longer, twice as many people are living pension as pensioners yeah. than were. 30 years ago, society needs to address that problem. Mm. But the, the difficulty we've got is that we've got administrations that seek to address that problem by sacrifice on one side, where what's actually needed uh, is a great deal more uh, 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 attention to things like productivity, how those rewards are distributed, and right. how we perhaps paper people into retirement yeah. rather than have a dead stop. You know, Anne Elizabeth, France has had some laws on its books for decades now, and uh, Let's be honest, times, as you know, have changed very much. Being a train conductor, for example, does not involve having to shovel coal 
into the engine anymore. Still, train conductors can technically retire at 55. Um, change to labor laws does not come easy in France, uh, even when it seems so obvious that it needs to. So does the bottom fall out at some point? Is that at risk here? Well, uh, the train conductors actually belong to an entirely different pension system, which is the one big unfairness that nobody is addressing right now, hmm. which is that about one third of the French are uh, work within a different uh, pension system in which uh, the conditions are much better for their pensions. Retirement for a train conductor at 55, he's not shoveling coal anymore, and not all train conductors are, are, are um, driving TGVs, high-speed trains. But it's it's one of the it's it's the it's the one anecdote that everybody quotes. You have got other conditions that make it difficult, and the probably one of the most uh, dangerous one, especially for the health system, was when um, a socialist government installed the 35-hour work week. Uh, the idea was a Malthusian one, which was that if you if you have a 35-hour work week, there will be more work to go around because we've got structural employment. And one of the reasons we have structural employment in France, which is right now at 8%, and we're very happy with it, uh, is it's always between 8 and 10%, is that the cost of labor is huge. Uh, it's not for, you know, and the cost of labor is such that if, if I take a hypothetical, say, a pay of a level, you know, 1,000, somebody works for such and such a time, and that person is paid 1,000 euros. Mm. Uh, that person will receive, will have in their pockets about 780 euros. The boss will pay almost 2,000 euros. So that yeah. gives you uh, an example of how much social levies are being, uh, are being levied, pensions and other things in health. Everything is only levied on salaries. Right. Uh, in Britain, I think more of it is on tax. Hmm. Uh, you know what, uh, Amanda, if we can, I, we, we spoke briefly about the taxi sector uh, and the, the protests we're seeing now in Catalonia, um, that's causing massive problems right now uh, in the state of Catalonia, where we've seen this, though, across Europe, because services like Uber have come on the market, threatened the businesses of traditional taxis, and there's so much frustration on both sides, because, well, in France, for example, taxis can be uniquely difficult, uh, and in Britain, they can be uniquely expensive. Uh, Uber initially came as such a relief for customers, but uh, when cab drivers have paid tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars for a taxi license, they can't afford uh, to allow that kind of competition in. I'm wondering where where can that balance actually be found to avoid these these kind of you know, massive standoffs like what we're seeing now in Spain? Well, I think it's very difficult because, as you say, if you're a taxi driver, there's a lot of upfront expense that you've got um, for your career and all the training that goes with that. Uber has a reputation for being much more fast and quick and um, immediately accessible, but also you, the, the disadvantage is that um, – they don't necessarily have the knowledge that taxi drivers have built up. And actually, I'm mm. seeing this myself. I, I, I used to use Uber. I found it very fast, very quick. You could see where the taxis were. You didn't have to wait. But actually, the prices that I'm seeing now in London have become so expensive that I'm using black cabs again and I'm using my local taxi company. Um, so I'm seeing a shift now. I think Uber is now um, has in my personal experience, a much um, more difficult time than it had previously. And it's, and it's allowing the taxi firms to um, make a resurgence as well, um, as well as the black cabs that you see in and around London. 
Um, mm. but, it, but it's difficult because in any market, there will always be somebody who thinks they've got the next best thing and can um, a, a new entrant to the market that might be faster and leaner and quicker and with less legacy to deal with. Um, so I think Uber is one example, but you've got lots of others in different sectors. Right. And Elizabeth, just quickly about France, because, I mean, it's, it's not just that taxis can be expensive in France. They, they're they can be really difficult. I've, I've had, I think, my most miserable experiences in transportation with French taxis. Um, they're not even there half the time. Yet that was a massive holdup for all of France when they, the taxi drivers, went on strike. Um, where is that balance supposed to be found? Because this is something that fundamentally affects people's lives, just being able to get around. You know that Uber was dreamt of by Travis Kalanick, the founder of Uber, precisely because he couldn't get a taxi in Paris. So you're on to something. Well, actually, we have come to a sort of better relations between taxis and um, the various capture rideshare uh, apps because uh, they've become more expensive. The taxis have become more competitive. The taxis have also become more reliable. Many of the companies now, there's a sort of crossover in which you can use a rideshare app and order a taxi, and it will give you an idea of how much it will be. Uh, and uh, we had a problem of essentially also a very French thing, Malthusianism, in which there were artificially small numbers because of price of taxi license. This is better. You can more or less get around in Paris right now, uh, so uh, which is a good thing because cars no longer very much can come to Paris. Right. But that is, uh, there's a kind of market balance that has been found and most of the taxi drivers that I take, I take taxi like all of us, uh, they say that you know they, they, they bring a different service and it works out better nowadays than it used to. Market balance is but key. John, me, 10 seconds, quickly. Yeah, let me say on this that I've used Uber and I love it a lot of the time, but there has to be in anything like this regulation because the public yeah. need to know that they're not getting into a taxi with a rapist or a murderer. And there also needs to be regulation because the people who are driving those taxis are under the illusion a lot of the time of self-employment right. rather than real self-employment. And they deserve pensions and As rights well. too. Great point. John, we're going to have to leave it there. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this edition of the Newsmakers. I'd like to thank all three of my panelists so much for being with us, our viewers, of course, for joining us as well. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter and do be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm Andrea Sankey. We'll see you next time.